babies are always born young. Why? How do those cells escape aging? And then why is it that the cells in our body just age in a few decades, whereas those cells left no dead ancestors in their way? Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. All right, Dr. Mike West, thank you for joining me at Humanos Radio. I'd like to begin with a quote from the increasingly famous aging scientist, Aubrey de Grey, who's been a guest on this show before. He said, you've occupied a pivotal role in the anti-aging world as by far the most effective advocate for true anti-aging research within the private sector. And so today I'd love to talk to you about your journey, the companies you lead, mostly the company AgeX and the future of aging sciences. So to begin, you founded the biotech company Geron in 1990. This is one of the first biotech companies in the aging space. Why did you start that company and, and what does it do? You know, I started it because I wanted to make a difference on aging in our lifetime and thinking about really strategically how that would be done. Now, you have to be strategic, don't you? If you're going to profoundly change how we age in our lifetime, of course, this was back, I don't know, 1979 or so. I was sober about this. I mean, we knew precious little about aging. We'd have a really steep learning curve. I had reasons to believe that there was something to be learned, just looking at how aging works in nature. But still, and we had molecular biology back then, you know, the cut and splice DNA technology was just coming on board right then. But, you know, we really didn't know very much at all, really, about aging. And so you had to be strategic. And part of my strategic thinking was getting a PhD, you could you know, have an academic lab. And if you worked really hard and wrote a lot of grants, maybe you'd have 10 or 20 people in your lab. But I thought if you did biotech and you could do it successfully, you could you know, potentially have hundreds of people working on these projects and it's simple math, 10 times the number of people. And it's really how fast a lot of the science can be implemented is really driven by headcount. I have to just acknowledge your bravery at the time because being one of the first true pioneers in the science of the aging process of the human body probably was not an easy task because I think right. aging was relegated to that of fiction and woo. And so it was probably an interesting terrain to navigate at the time to get people to take it seriously. I won't name names, but I just paint a little vignette here. So one day I was talking to one of the professors during my graduate training and again, thinking strategically. And I said, okay, so we were studying the aging of cells, human cells. Fastest, best way to get at human aging is to study human biology. And then, well, you can't really study humans and put them in a test tube. So cells cultured in the dish. So human cells age. They have this phenomenon on the Hayflick phenomenon where they age in the laboratory dish. So I was talking to this professor. And I said, all right, so let me get my arms around this problem. So what we want to do is understand the molecular mechanisms that cause human cells to stop proliferating after a certain number of times. Once we figured that out, assuming it's you know driven by genes or something, mm -hmm. find ways of modifying those genes to slow or maybe even extend the lifespan of cells, and then figure out how that could be translated into a therapeutic that could be applied to humans in context of aging. And I thought that was very logical. And I looked up at his face and the look of horror <laughs> On this professor's face, I wish I had had a little handheld camera like in those days and taken mm. a picture of it. He looked at me like I was a friggin' maniac, bonkers. And mm. he kind of gulped and he said, well, 
Mike, at least you've got a good imagination. <laughs> yeah, that was the world of aging research yeah. in the 80s. There was an immense skepticism that we would ever understand the aging of human cells, let alone human aging. And that has changed dramatically. But you're right. It took a lot of courage to try to raise capital and build a company in the face of that immense skepticism. Well, the promise of being able to affect it has been promised for a very long time. And I think not only was it just the challenge of understanding aging as it's happening, but then also in, as you're saying, just the environment of the time. So if you were in that field, you're sort of a charlatan. Farthing kind of. I had one professor when I was in a school say, you know, Mike, I thought of this too, of getting into the field of aging research, because it's just so interesting, you know, and so scientists love love to explore, be pioneers, turn over new rocks, find new things. You know, that's a person died in the wall scientist just eats that up. They love that. And he was saying, boy, you know, I would like to have done that. But I asked my graduate advisor about it. And he said, well, do you want to ruin your career? Mm. It was perceived as fringe science. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Because any reasonable person could have looked and seen their premature aging syndromes where people grow old in their mid-teens. Clearly, there is biology at work here to be found. So speaking about ruining your career, you're now leading how many companies? Geron, Biotime, Ajax? <laughs> I don't have any involvement in Geron anymore. And Geron yeah. drifted away from its focus on aging not long after I left. But uh, currently, yeah, I'm co-CEO of Biotime, which is sort of the hub of the wheel here, the parent corporation. It's a public company. And then I'm running a new spin-out of Biotime called Ajax Therapeutics. And we plan to have that Ajax, that is, public here this year in 2018. It's focused 100% on aging and aging therapeutics. And specifically, you're going to be looking at or are looking at stem cells as part of this. And I'd love to get an introduction to stem cells because I think they're coming into the awareness of the general public. There's more conversations on this people that have huge audiences like Joe Rogan have had people on and those shows have been very popular. So maybe we could talk about what are stem cells? What are the different types of stem cells that are being researched for intervention in humans to just get an overview so people have a better understanding of that before we look at what you guys do? Let me both explain what the stem cell thing is about, how it relates to aging, but also dispel some really significant myths about them. So let's see if I can do all of that in a quick manner here. So why would an aging researcher get involved in stem cells? The reason is really simple. It's like a detective story. It's like a Sherlock Holmes mystery novel. You try to figure mm -hmm. out, instead of the murderer, you try to find out the, the force behind human mortality. What's killing all humans? What's the agent of the crime? And one of the trails I followed in that detective story was a very profound one, I think, which is that we're made of cells, of course. So I think people don't appreciate what that really means. Our bodies are comprised of billions of living entities of, called cells. All these cells are alive in a very true sense. You can free them of the body and they can live. We think we originally evolved from these single cell, kind of like pond water animals, but they glued together in the case of humans. Now, as I alluded to earlier, you can free them from the body and grow them in the dish, but they age they replicate a certain number of times and then stop very reproducibly. It's called the Hayflick limit. But it occurred to me that there had to be 
an exception. There is a lineage of cells that connect the generations, of course. This is basic reproductive biology here. A sperm and egg get together and make one cell that then divides and makes the body, but it also makes the lineage that makes another sperm and egg cell that connects together and makes another human. And that process goes on forever. And indeed, the cells in our body are the result of a like domino cascade of cells that have been doing this for billions of years. And they've escaped aging. Mm -hmm. So all these things we think cause aging, DNA damage, cosmic rays, or free radicals, or whatever it may be, it doesn't affect those cells and that they continue to make humans. Babies are always born young. Why? How do those cells escape aging? And then why is it that the cells in our body just age in a few decades, whereas those cells have left no dead ancestors in their wake? That is the question that I pursued. And so we learned that some of the mechanisms behind that cellular immortality, but one would predict that if we could capture the cells right after the egg is fertilized by sperm. So like if you do in vitro fertilization and mm. sperm and egg and put them together in the dish and you make fertilized egg cell, the cell will divide and divide. And after a few doublings, those they call pre-embryos or pre-implantation embryos, they're little clusters of cells that are have not yet formed any of the cells of the body, we predicted that if you could capture those cells, mm -hmm. you would have what are called embryonic stem cells. And in the mouse, you can turn them into a mouse. It's really mm -hmm. cool. And so what occurred to me was they would still have that replicative immortality of the reproductive lineage of cells. They would not age and anything you made from them would be young and we could make any of the cells of the human body from them. So what we could do from a biotech standpoint is make sort of a parts supply store for the human body, making young heart muscle, young nerve cells or bone cells or cartilage cells or whatever. And we could do that on a truly industrial scale, something that medicine has never been able to do in the whole history of medicine. Right now, you know, if you have a heart failure, you might have to try to find a heart transplant because there's no way of injecting new heart cells into the heart. So that was the vision. It came to be called regenerative medicine. And the myth part of this is that those are called stem cells because they branch out like a tree. You know, making one cell type becomes many hundreds of cell types, like the branches of a tree. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of myths in regard to the ethics. Some people perceive it as unethical, and I strongly disagree. But secondly, without naming names, a lot of uh, snake oil, charlatan type folks have gone out there saying, you heard of stem cells? Well, we have them now. And mm -hmm. what they offer people are treatments today that have not gone through FDA regulatory approval. And there are so many of these, it's hard to judge and say one statement about them all, but they may well be very unsafe and they may not work because they've never been demonstrated by any proper clinical trials in most cases. And so people confuse, someone just sent me the cover of a newspaper here recently all about stem cells. It said stem cell and as though there were one cell. And it, I knew that this was all this science, to, to borrow a term from President Trump. And so that's part of the mythology of this. It's tough for people to sort through. So I'll do a little synthesis here. 
some cells in our body stay young. So when we produce new generations of humans, they're young when they begin. Right. And when the sperm and egg come together and a blastocyst is formed, which is many different cells, it has not yet undergone this process of cellular differentiation so that these fundamental building blocks of cells turn into liver or heart or brain tissue, but rather they have the potential to become all these different types of cells. Talk specifically about how do different cells know? What are the signals that they are given? They're all somewhat the same. What are the signals to become a heart tissue or muscle tissue? What is that process? You know, probably the simplistic way of thinking about it. It's sort of like, you know, you've seen these cascades of dominoes. Yeah. It's been obviously many hours <laughs> to line up all these dominoes and see them all fall down in just a matter of 30 seconds or something. Yeah, those are great. It's kind of like that. So the egg fertilizes the sperm and you make a bunch of the cluster of these unformed cells, which are the equivalent of the embryonic stem cell. And then if the embryo implants into a uterus, which only happens about half the time, then you start a pregnancy. And that's really where the individual human life begins. And the cascade starts. And these cells, you know, one gene gets turned on, which turns on 10 other genes that turn on 10 other genes each. And like a cascade, they begin to form, as you said, it's called differentiation. So this unformed cell starts to say, oh, I'm going to become a nerve cell. Oh, mm. I'm going to become a nerve cell in the eye and the retina oh, I'm going to become a rod or a cone, you know. And they make these decisions based on these genes that, uh, like switches, get turned on and off in the DNA. Mm. And in most cases, those decisions to become something, a skin cell or a bone cell or a blood cell, is a one-way process. Normally, they become a nerve cell, and that's what they are to the end of life. The amazing thing is we've now learned how plastic that phenomenon is. We can actually profoundly change the fate of cells, even the mortality of cells. So the other part that you'd mentioned that I didn't mention in my previous summary is that one cells differentiate and they become, let's say, heart tissue. I think we're increasingly learning that some cells of the body that we thought previously could not generate new cells, like in the brain. We know that we can generate some new nerve tissue, but like in the heart, once you have a myocyte and that becomes damaged, we have to do a heart transplant instead of just growing new healthy cells in replace of the damaged ones. And this here, this seems to be where figuring out a mechanism to utilize the understanding and techniques of stem cell differentiation in a full human being where we could somehow replace some or all of those damaged cells with new tissue, that would be a major boon for society. And is that specifically the type of work you you and your team are looking at is looking at how to target stem cell knowledge to replace damaged tissue in the body. Yeah. As I said, that's what came to be called regenerative medicine. The yeah. term was coined really to referring to what we're talking about right now. Now is borrowed and now there's you know, regenerative medicine, skin creams and everything else, but that's what the term was originally designed to define. And we've just really begun this revolution. We have cells, one of our sister companies, Asterius, has a clinical trial underway for treating patients with spinal cord injury. 
by mm. injecting embryonic stem cell derived cells for those patients. And that's trial's been doing quite well. We're injecting cells into the retina. So we've turned them into very young retinal cells for the aging retina. You get blindness. It's called age-related macular degeneration. And we're treating patients for that. And again, seeing some very promising results to date. And there's a handful of other trials around the world, but there's literally hundreds of applications here, making skin for burn patients, making cartilage for arthritis, uh, Parkinson's disease, heart muscles, you mentioned. There's hundreds of different kinds of cells in the body, and this will change medicine long-term forever. The hope is, is that one day you will never see a patient in need of some transplant or some replaced cells, a bone marrow transplant or whatever it may be. But that was really just the thought bombs that went off here in the last 20, 30 years. That was just one of them. Probably the next one I would point to would be, there was this guy named Keith Campbell over in Scotland in Edinburgh, this animal research institute called the Roslyn Institute. And he tried this wild-eyed experiment. He took, remember how we were saying, cells, once they've differentiated, become brain or whatever. Yeah. They don't change. Keith tried something that he actually had to do an experiment kind of lying about what he was really intending to do because everyone (laughs) thought he was bonkers, to use his own words. (laughs) Instead of a heart cell, he took a breast epithelial cell. These are the cells that make milk in the mammary gland in the breast tissue. Okay. And there was a reason for doing that. They were culturing those cells for a reason. And he took that cell and put it into an egg cell as though it were a sperm. And then he took the resulting cell and put it into the uterus of a mama sheep and got a baby lamb. And because it was made from breast tissue, they named her after Dolly Parton. Dolly. That experiment was a thought bomb because Mm. almost no one on the planet, maybe no one on the planet other than Keith Campbell, believed that that kind of aging, you know, the aging of differentiation that occurs during development was reversible. Right. We did believe it was reversible and changed the world forever. That became what we call reprogramming. It's like saying you have a floppy disk, the old floppy disks, you know, you stick them in a computer and you reformat them or, or reformat your hard drive, whatever, that showed that cells were completely plastic in that respect. And it really begged the question, is the aging of human cells that plastic? Could you actually reverse the Mm -hmm. aging of human cells using the egg cell, the Mm -hmm. time machine, carry the cell back in time? And I'll cut to the base. It is, and it can be. Human cells can be reversed. So instead of just replacing cells that have aged, because it has all the genetic information there, if you create the right environment, you could reverse them and turn them potentially into a whole different type of cell. Most people have heard about the stem cell thing. And like I said, there's myths. They think that they don't understand what the real excitement's about is that these pluripotent cells, as we call them, that that don't age and can make young cells of any kind. But very few people have heard that the aging of human cells is entirely reversible. And the way we learned that was through some really challenging experiments, ethically challenging experiments that I led years ago at a company called Advanced Cell Technology, where we actually 
actually did human cloning experiments, but not intended to make babies, but just mm-hmm. this is a time machine for cells. And that was around the year 2001. And then that evolved over time into more sophisticated technologies where we no longer use cloning, but accomplish the same thing by a more sophisticated understanding of how cell aging can be reversed. But so then that opened the door to taking a cell from a 120-year-old person back in time to the cells they were born from. And we, I think, pretty convincingly demonstrated that we could make young cells of any kind that you had 120 years previously, and they'd be identical to the cells you had back then to replace cells in the body, like fixing up an old antique car, the difference being that they would be your own cells, you know, not cells of a different DNA type. I interviewed Mike and Irene Conboy from UC Berkeley a while ago, and they did the parabiosis studies, some of the first that were sewing an old mouse to a young mouse. And they found that once the capillaries formed between the two mouse, there was two things that happened. The younger mouse was made older, and the older mouse was made younger. And they were then thinking, well, what's going on? Is that there young factors that are going into the old mouse? Is it a dilution of old factors? But one thing they're identifying, essentially the micro environment of these cells that are preventing stem cells from differentiating that we have that are still young in our body that have the potential to become new tissue, but just are stymied by inflammatory markers, et cetera. And so it makes me think that this pluripotency of if you can affect the microenvironment, it sounds like that would be one of the key factors to affect the age of differentiated cells. Is that what your focus is on? Well, it's very similar to what you described in that when nature hands you this amazing holiday present, you open it up and like, holy cow, we can make the pluripotent cells allows us to make human cells of any kind. That's just an amazing gift to mankind. Then they have on top of that the ability to transport disposable cells. I mean, you can pull a hair out of your head and get living cells and take a living cell from a patient and take it back in time and make the young heart muscle they had when they were born. Even an estimable uh, economic and humanitarian yeah. benefit to mankind. Just a, an amazing thing. But it doesn't stop there. What you described was like with those parabiosis experiments, you know, who would want to hook up if you're old, if you're an elderly person that's not doing well, who would want to sew your, your body to a millennial to your grandson? Try to, you know, that's obviously not a cool thing to do. But although there are people trying to do similar things, right? Right. The young blood. Reminds you of a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, by the way, some of that was the concept of those old vampire stories. But what science would do with that immediately, and that's indeed what's happened in both these fields, parabiosis and what I just described about cloning, is to say, okay, but what in the blood of the young animal is making the old animal younger? So we don't have to sew the bodies together and do all that sort of thing. And the same thing, rather than doing this therapeutic cloning thing and trying to find human egg cells and do the cloning thing, what is it in the egg cell that does this? And that's what we call in science, you know, reductionism, reducing it down, boiling it down. What's the bare minimum number of molecules it takes to do the same thing? Because you don't need all, a lot of that other stuff. And that's what science does and routinely does and 
does quite effectively. And so what we've done now in recent years, and it's really the basis of Ajax, as you just described, is identified factors that reverse the aging of cells. And these factors, we call it induced tissue regeneration because I could have called it induced you know, age reversal for that matter. But what our goal is, is not to transport cells all the way back to these unformed cells. If we did, if I gave you a pill, and I said to you, by the way, good news is this will profoundly reverse the aging of all the cells in your body back to the very beginning of life. You might be tempted to take the pill. But then if I told you, by the way, it would reverse the differentiation of all the cells in your body. So you'll be this puddle of unformed cells, but boy, they'll be real young. I think then you would say, oh, I don't think I want that pill. I don't want to be a 190-pound blastocyst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't want to be a blastocyst again, like Benjamin Button or something. So what we've done, again, trying to reduce things down to the bare minimum, what we're interested in doing at Ajax is finding these factors that can take the cells in the body back in time to reverse aging, but only back in time to what we call the Weissman barrier. The Weissman barrier, named after August Weissman, a scientist in the 1800s, was the first to recognize that there's something that occurs when our, after our body's formed that prevents cells from replicating forever, but also prevents the tissue from regenerating, repairing itself. If you have a heart attack, your heart can't grow back. If you cut your skin, it doesn't really grow back. It scars over. Everything in the body scars. If you have a stroke, you kind of a scar tissue in the brain. It doesn't grow back. Yeah. But what we believe is some of these animals that can do that, like the Mexican salamander, you lob off a piece of its heart, it grows back. It cut its leg off, it actually grows back. Yeah. That that can be induced in humans by taking these cells way back in time and this way back machine but not back to the puddle of unformed cells, just back to a regenerative state. And the thing that's really got us jazzed about this is we believe that these pathways are the same pathways that have are downstream are regulating things you've probably had on your show before, things like people working on mTOR and sirtuin, growth hormone and all these sorts of things. These are the same pathways that are modified by what we call induced tissue regeneration. Mm. And so uh, we're really excited about this. And it's really the culmination of, I even want to think how many decades now of R&D trying to get at a very ambitious program, you know, to profoundly impact the central biology of human aging itself. So I want to understand this with more clarity. Would your technology target, for example, scar tissue and reverse it back to healthy function cells, or would it just try to avoid the scar tissue and just create more healthy new cells that would replace that scar tissue? What would that look like in the case of a stroke or a heart attack? Right now, uh, we see that it takes a few weeks to take cells back in time. Weeks? Wow. Yeah, weeks. Yeah. So it's not instantaneous. We're working on that. These are the early days. We haven't perfected the formulation of these things. We don't know how fast we can make it happen. But the good news is in the case of stroke, you have weeks. It takes weeks, in fact, for the brain to regenerate and it takes weeks for scar tissue to form. So that would work in the case of the brain. In mm -hmm. case of like skin wound or a burn, if you already have a scar from a burn or a wound or whatever, my best understanding is, is that 
this technology would not make the scar go away, but I don't know that for sure. But the thought is, is if you had a fresh wound or a fresh burn, it could be very effective at allowing tissue to regenerate normally without scar formation. So my instinct here is that the initial application would be reactive, but the long-term would be preventative. So reactive would be issue occurs and we intervene at the right time interval to encourage a better outcome. So not scarring or scar, but plus additional function. But then long-term, hopefully you could not have to wait for a problem to occur, but you could prevent it from occurring altogether. I was in a hotel in Houston, Texas, and uh, Houston has got the Texas Medical Center, where I did my PhD, mm. and Michael DeBakey was there, famous heart transplant, heart surgeon. Uh, he handed me my diploma, in fact. And there on this hotel wall was a big picture of Michael DeBakey, and it said, can you imagine a world where there was no heart transplantation. And I said out loud, I think, yeah, I can. <laughs> and that's the world we're trying to create. So yeah. our belief is, is that if we can take a cell all the way back to the beginning of life, taking it back to this regenerative state is less miraculous. The human body has that capability, just that gets lost. It's when we're first forming, the body has that ability. It is a, human, a property of human biology, mm -hmm. as is cell immortality, by the way, as we said at the beginning of our talk. And so allowing us in our adult form of our life or as, as older people to turn back on molecular processes that allow tissues to regrow after they're damaged would forever change medicine. And it shouldn't be seen so miraculous because again, some animals can do it. We once did it. We just lose it as a part of normal development and aging. And we have very strong evidence at this point that this is where medicine's headed. So good news for many people. I think a, a basis of hope. But then to be sober about this, these are the early days of R&D and it'll take years to implement and perform clinical trials and to make these things available to patients. It exists in nature. It exists in us. And we just, with greater understanding of those mechanisms and new technology to figure out how to implement the right way and with time to test and ensure safety, this could really be a possibility. And let me just add another thing. What is so exciting about current medical research is not just what we just talked about, although those things are pretty exciting. If I could go back in a time machine to that old graduate advisor and say, look what we did, uh, that'd be a lot of fun because what we already have seen happen in science is, would have been seen as miraculous just a few decades ago. But what is maybe even more miraculous is the power of modern medical research. If I explained how you know, we have this dialogue in the news media about the intelligence agencies monitoring emails and cyber communications and all this. Some people thinking they're communicating in confidence and they're not and all this. Big Brother's up there watching all your emails. Well, in a similar way, because of modern DNA sequencing technologies, we can read the entire genome of a person in one day now, under $1,000. Mm -hmm. And we can read the emails within the cell. What are those? So the DNA is the blueprint of life and then coded off from that DNA are RNAs, like messenger RNAs. And those are sort of the emails that get sent off to tell the cell what to make and how to behave and so on. And we can now read all of the emails of all the cells in the body 
all the messenger RNAs using this modern sequencing technology and do it for $300. And the amount of information that gives us, scientists are drowning in information. The research that would have taken, what we can do in one day for $300 would have taken us a thousand years and many millions of dollars just, you know, 20, 30 years ago. If we just didn't make progress and worked at the pace that 30 years ago had, if we just kept that, it would take a thousand years. Yeah. So when I set off to work on aging, you know, back in the 80s, I had thoughts as to the kind of progress we could make using modern DNA technology, but I couldn't have foreseen the speed at which we could gather information. Now, really, we're actually leaning a bit on computers and artificial intelligence to yeah. a lot of this because we just recently published a study where we were looking deep within cells. It was deep sequencing and thousands of different samples and the human mind couldn't possibly wrap itself around so much data and we use supercomputer algorithms and artificial intelligence to uh, to help us out. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that should really be encouraging to your listeners that medical problems like cancer and others that were considered just, you know, not in your lifetime solvable now there's immense hope in the medical research community because of this unprecedented and really unanticipated power that's been put in our hands to decipher these riddles that have haunted mankind for so long. You know, what causes cancer? Why do some cancers go away in some patients? You know, what's the basis? What's the molecular causes of Alzheimer's disease? You know, these have been riddles for the whole history of mankind. In the lifetime of many now listening and many now living, we'll see these things very much understood. And in as much as it's within our power, a new path for treatment. I interviewed Ira Pastor, CEO of BioQuark, who are looking to create what they call combinatorial biologics, which is looking at the oocyte moieties and what factors can direct cells as we are discussing in certain directions. And if we can understand the different species that have greater regenerative capabilities than us and what those factors are, and then can we kind of transport that into knowledge in the human. But in that conversation, I asked him if they're going to be using machine learning and AI. And the answer was absolutely yes. And you know, whenever you're just dealing with things that have a combinatorial factor to them, where there's just many different items that are taking part in the process, then let's say it takes 10 years for some of the things that we're talking about to come to fruition, like an understanding about how to completely end cancer, 75 to 90% of that might happen within the last six months of that 10-year period, but there's just this absolute skyrocketing once we have the AI and computers doing analysis and crunching on it at a speed that is just heretofore unimaginable. (laughs) And all this is absolutely true beyond dispute. But the implications to our society could be so profound. We have this baby boom tsunami coming our way, which I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts. And it's going to cost our nation trillions of dollars that we don't have budgeted. It's going to be like a natural tsunami. It's going to be disastrous because we're just not prepared. But what I'm telling you is, is that science and medicine have new understandings in our hands here that we could turn into therapies that would reduce costs because so many of the costs of aging are these chronic diseases where the body cannot repair itself. So you have chronic pain, chronic degeneration. You have to get a plastic or metal hip put in or whatever, and it's expensive. And the surgery is expensive, the rehabilitation is expensive, and so on. Or blindness, you need help around the house and shopping. It's just nuking our economy. Well, these therapies could dramatically cut costs because 
the vision was just restored naturally. You wouldn't have to have someone shop for you. You could have an independent lifestyle. And so what's really important is that we do some planning as a nation in terms of policy directives. And there is none. Yeah. Almost none. There's a lot of talk about cutting drug costs, but I've never seen anybody come to the scientific community and say, you know, could we cut costs by getting rid of the abolishing. Yeah, it's a whole different model. There's a lot of skepticism that would be the case, but I can tell you smallpox. Smallpox was a devastating disease, caused a lot of suffering and cost. It costs us nothing now because it's gone. Yeah. And how is it gone? Science and technology. We made vaccines. It's gone. Medical innovation can cut costs. And so if any of your listeners have any influence on government policy in the U.S. or in other countries around the world, some smart planning here to use this what the scientific community is saying is we've got really incredibly powerful new technologies to solve these problems. Now is the time in the history of our country to invest in this because by investing millions or billions, we could save trillions. With every pretty much every person that I've had on the show discussing something related to aging, there is this exasperation of the paltry amount of NIH funding that goes to the National Institute of Aging. I think it's 4% of the total budget. And yet, if we understand these mechanisms of aging, it's almost like aging is doing a disservice. If you called it like chronic disease prevention or something, they would maybe get onto the consciousness of... National crisis tsunami prevention. Maybe. Yeah, 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 something like that. But not you say this paltry amount that goes to the National Institute on Aging, but of the budget in the National Institute on Aging, a paltry percent, it used to be 3%, I don't know mm. what it is today, they spend on the biology of aging, you know, the mm. mechanisms of aging. Most of it's spent on, you know, what kind of carpet to put in a nursing home and right. um, other social things, which, you know, are, I mean, to mean those, those are potentially yeah. helpful. But what would really be helpful is to invent a world where people could have an increased health span, could yeah. live free of chronic, debilitating diseases, and maybe even extend the human lifespan. That's usually not considered the goal of most aging research today, you know, yeah. is try to allow us to live healthy longer. Well, how can I summarize it? We know how to do it. We knew how to go to the moon in the early 1960s. I'm sure that's why President Kennedy said, we'll do it in a decade. Scientists could assure him that we knew how to get there. We got to do some engineering. It's going to take a budget and a lot of people. Yeah. And that's exactly where we are today in aging research. We know how to dramatically improve aging, even maybe the unimaginable, maybe eliminate yep. aging. And we know how to get there, but these small entrepreneurial efforts like what we're doing is not sufficient. We really need to ramp this up at a higher level. And it'd be great if governments planned for this and helped with the National Institutes of Health and so on. Yeah, it seems like because of the culture of just the way the world works today, that these things that we could take action on now to advance things so that we're equivalent of landing on the moon 10 years from now, it's going to just drag out. It could drag out 30 years. And yet we're going to have this inefficiency of all the spending towards symptom management and appropriate rug placement and, <laughs> you know, if you will, in the nursing homes where we could be just addressing the fundamental nature of what's causing the chronic disease and all age-related symptoms, I guess much more directly. So my opinion is that once the world is able to see one clear win from aging science, then there's going to be a lot of momentum that builds. What do you think that first win is? What's the nearest term win in the aging field? You know, I don't know. Years ago, a colleague of mine, Saul Kent, who's founded the Life Extension Foundation, you know, and been an advocate of cryonics, you know, freezing mm -hmm. people when they die. 
Saul was a very clever man, and he always predicted that there would be, this was before the term tipping point, you know, but he always, very vocal, he said, this is the biggest idea in the history of mankind, which I'd argue against. Mm -hmm. And he said, there's going to be a tipping point, and he didn't use those terms, a time when all of a sudden it all changes and people realize this, and it's going to be dramatic. And I always listened to him, because he used to say it a lot, (laughs) and I thought it was an interesting idea. It's hard to imagine why science fiction writers like Gene Roddenberry and others never seem to work this into their stories. You know, when they envision the future a few hundred years from now, everyone's still aging the same way and so on. Mm -hmm. But you're right. In that future, clearly, society's going to look back on us and think we were a bunch of barbarians. Why did they just bury their loved ones or their daughters and their moms and dads and they just found that okay, you know? Yeah. they mobilize? Why did they find that acceptable? And we're going to have a change, a sea change here. What will trigger it? I don't know. Uh, there's clearly momentum building. As we started our conversation, when I entered the field back in the early 80s, it was a desert. There was no one thought about this. Now it's very much different. Uh, there are scientific journals devoted to this field. Many new scientific papers coming out, a lot of excitement building, a lot of science building. This will translate into public understanding. Will there be one trigger? Perhaps there are animal experiments underway. Most of these are behind the scenes. You're not hearing about them. Uh, To see, can we genetically engineer profound longevity into animals? Yep. Some of those might get published, but then people say, oh, it's an animal. You know, it's not a human. On the cell therapy side, we're transplanting these young cells into the retina of old people. Mm-hmm. And the program's on track. We're seeing what we expected to see at this point. Some of that may be a sea change, but your guess is as good as mine. I'm a terrible fortune <laughs> teller. Well, one thing that I think is really savvy of you and also might be that bridge between the way the world works now by addressing symptoms of chronic disease that occur with aging, mostly, and age-initiated technologies, so things around stem cells, that sort of can meet at addressing symptoms. And so the one that I'm particularly thinking of, which I think is really smart, is AgeX BAT1. So looking to help with type 2 diabetes by increasing stores of brown fat. And just for the listener, we have white adipose tissue on our bodies, which we now know is an excrement gland. It releases lots of different hormones, but we used to think it was just this inert substance that stored energy. Brown adipose tissue, we used to think only children had it, but it is a metabolically active tissue. It's brown because it's loaded with mitochondria. And what's so interesting about brown fat is that it converts calories that we eat into heat. And it's a very interesting way to actually handle blood glucose regulation because it's taking in blood glucose and it's turning it into heat. So it's a great way to manage it. I'm looking at brown fat from different applications related to sleep. Interesting. We don't have to get into those. But tell us about your work there. Out of the couple of different programs that you have, how far along is this one? Yeah. So yeah, it's one of the lead programs in Ajax. That's right. And so it really should be renamed, I think. It's called brown fat, but it's really kind of like anti-fat, as you pointed out. So it normal fat stores calories, it disposes of them. And it's like a furnace, as you said, Mm. to generate heat in the body. And we have a lot of it when we're young and lose it precipitously with age. This is really a new understanding. It's kind of amazing, really. We've been in medicine, you know, dissecting bodies and studying the body for going back to the Greeks, you know. How in the world medicine overlooked this tissue until just the last decade is, is just kind of bizarre.
are. Yeah. But there you have it. So a new understanding of this and uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes and all of its downstream effects, you know, this predisposes you to coronary disease and lots of other complications, diabetic retinopathy and everything else is an enormous problem. And I've had critics say to me, you know, well, Mike, okay, let's say that you transplant these cells into patients that are struggling with weight control or uh, diabetes or whatever. Yeah, but come on. I mean, we've got the cure. It's exercise and losing weight. My response is it doesn't work. And people can't manage their weight this way. They've been trying. Well, they say, well, we'll have a national campaign. We'll put ads on television. My response to that is, look, most people take a shower every day. I do. And Mm -hmm. look at yourself in the mirror. And there you go. (laughs) So everybody every day is looking at themselves and I'm sure they're motivated saying, you know, I need to take off those extra pounds. And they don't. And this is just a real challenge. We've evolved. I have a dog at home, you know, and you know, I have some meat and this dog is at my feet, you know, begging. Why? It just ate. We have an evolutionary instinct when food's on the table to eat it. This is ingrained in our brain. It's a very difficult thing to fast and to exercise and to, and to lose weight weight and our nation's not doing it. The United States in particular, we're known around the world as being an obese nation. And I think one of the most humanitarian things, maybe the smartest business move we could make is to provide an easy fix for this problem. And we hope that this product will be that. I have been fascinated in brown fat for a while now and looking at all the mechanisms, the triggers, and I do a cold shower in the morning to try to stimulate it. I look at different supplements like cinnamaldehyde and dihydrocapsiate. And I think that those are the question of whether or not you can regenerate brown fat where there was, let's say you had someone as a kid, you became an adult, there was very little, how much can you get back? But if you could use stem cell therapy to implant a lot more brown fat than you had previously. One of the differences for the listener, for people who, you can have two people that basically eat the same amount of food and one person will get fat, one person won't. And that the other one, some thinking is that their ability to turn that into heat is a major determinant in that person's ability to stay lean and healthy. And we know that obesity, such a problem, associates with 50 to 100 different comorbidities, things that are also going to reduce your health and your longevity. And so like you said, simple solution. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of other reasons to eat well and exercise, keep doing those, but why don't we make it easier for people? So another way of looking at too is when we were young, most people are like me. I was on the thin side and Mm -hmm. got self-conscious of that, you know, when I became a teenager. People Mm -hmm. said, like you're skinny. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, solve that. And I went out and bought these well, milkshakes at, at the local ice cream shop, but also they had mm-hmm. milkshake formulas, you know, to gain weight. And I just stoked up on that stuff. You know, I said, okay, I'm going to put on, you know, 10, 20 pounds. And I couldn't do it. Mm. I was young. And most people, when they're young, you can just eat like crazy and barely put on a pound. Yeah. If I did that now, I'd completely blimp out. What's changed? Yeah. What we believe is, you know, it's aging, but a big part of it is precipitous loss of brown fat. It's kind of like balances the scale. And as you pointed out, it burns a terrific amount of glucose and circulating lipids. So it also, the loss of brown fat is implicated in climbing triglyceride levels and cholesterol levels in your blood because this tissue absorbs that out of the blood as well. 
So yeah, I mean, it's a new approach to obesity and potentially type 2 diabetes, which is likely our target indication for a clinical trial. And there's lots of exciting things here. We made over 200 different cell types of the human body, mm-hmm. a scalable format. And you know, we had to look at them and say, what is the greatest unmet need? Where do we have the best competitive edge? The long list of criteria and brown fat came up near or at the top of the list. I think that's really smart. So how might this work? Would a person go into a clinic, get some of their tissue biopsied, that tissue would then be turned into brown fat for that individual, then planted back into that person and then monitored? Or would you even need to have tissue from that individual? Yes, as we said earlier in our conversation, that is actually possible. So you could take some disposable cell, a skin sample or hair plucked from your head or whatever, and reprogram those cells, take them back in a time machine, make young, unformed, pluripotent stem cells, and then turn them into brown fat or heart muscle or anything else. And they'd be your own young cells again. The challenge of that approach is not the science. It's a combination of the cost and Mm the adoption by industry. And let me start with the latter. Companies like off-the-shelf stuff. Pills are, for the most part, off-the-shelf. So you have sinus infection or whatever. Your doctor doesn't personalize it to you. He just gives you a prescription for the standard dose and you get the same pills everyone else gets. And large pharmaceutical companies and biotech love off-the-shelf products, as does the FDA. Mm -hmm. It makes it easy. You can do quality control, which is everything, everything about drug development and therapeutics development, you know, all is based on quality control. You have to manufacture a really uniform product that's safe and works. Yeah. An off-the-shelf approach where everything's the same for everyone makes that tremendously easier. Yeah. Taking cells from a patient and doing it patient by patient is extremely challenging for all those reasons. And FDA is very cooperative and would allow such a trial, I'm sure, and everything. But the costs of getting such a product approval would be multiples an off-the-shelf product and would cost, therefore, more for the patients as well. And so what we're targeting are off-the-shelf cells that we believe can be injected into all patients Mm. They won't be your own cells. We believe that they'll be engrafted and provide the same benefit, but they will not be your cells. They won't be anybody's cells. Mm-hmm. They'll be the same DNA type for all people. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing. That's the approach we're taking. So I'm also now seeing that with a lot of these therapies, there's probably going to be clinics that open up that are serving more high wealth mm-hmm. net worth individuals that can afford the higher cost. And some of that will be speculative and possibly dangerous, but there are people that are going to want to take action now. I'm sure there will be, and I can take a two scenarios that almost inevitable because of people's profit motor, right? So one is offshore clinics that say, we'll do it now and it's expensive, but billionaires can afford it and Mm -hmm. that'll be one. And I wouldn't be surprised that it's happening right now. Yeah. The second is the copycat you know, I'll just say snake oil type people who will say, we have brown fat skin cream <laughs> or whatever it will be. Yeah. And the best bet for all the listeners is to consult their physician and try to get really solid medical advice and not follow up on something just because they hear it in a podcast or read it in a magazine. Yeah. But be careful because with the aging population having over 70% of the financial assets of the United States, 76 million Americans are going to have the vast majority of savings. 
they're going to be manipulated by opportunists that see an opportunity to cash in on aging. So your listeners should be very skeptical and very cautious here. Yeah. Wonderful opportunities, but opportunities for to do good and make the world a better place. And then opportunities for people to take advantage of other people. It's so true. Being a part of the what's called the biohacker community, that is essentially people trying to figure out ways to optimize some part of their health, either their healing process. So I call them the unsatisfied sick. They've gone through mainstream medicine and have really received only drugs to suppress symptoms to people that are performance optimizers or even aging optimizers or whatever that. There's a lot of different categories. And we're at this interesting place where evidence-based medicine moves slowly and it feels very outdated oftentimes. And then you've got this panoply of options, some of which have great potential, some of which are neutral and expensive. So you're just going to waste some time and some of them are dangerous. And maybe there's some cross pollination there too, where something that is very effective is also very dangerous. We just don't know enough yet. Let me speak to that just briefly here, the dangerous part. Yeah, please. So when we're talking about free radical scavengers, vitamin E or C or whatever it may be, a lot of people heard the theories that we age because of free radicals. I had friends, you'd see them with a big pile of these pills, yeah. swallowing them after dinner. Yeah, it's kind of biohacking, right? Yeah, taking science in your own hands. We now think that that actually might have hurt them more than helped them, but probably to a small extent, probably wasn't terribly dangerous, although it might have had significant negative health impact. I'm not a fan myself, in my opinion, of growth hormone. Yeah. A lot of people, you see a lot of advertisements get growth hormone. In my opinion, it might make you look good in the near term, but I believe it accelerates aging. I think most gerontologists agree to that. But the technologies we've been talking about today, really profoundly reversing the aging itself by understanding the fundamental mechanisms behind the aging process. These processes are dangerously close, although not identical, to the processes involved in cancer. Right. And so learning about what some of these agents are and patents are being filed and many of them will be in the public domain. People can read about some of these factors and things and saying, I'm going to experiment on myself. One should be careful because the closer we get to modifying fundamental biology of aging, these are very powerful interventions, as you would imagine, and could have very powerful and negative consequences if administered incorrectly. And I would point to, you know, cancer being a major risk in that case. So just a word to the wise. Thank you for that. And I have two quick questions and then I'll let you go. I've really appreciated all your input here. But one, one, do you see a future where stem cell therapy will be administered for system-wide improvements. So instead of, again, trying to address specific tissue, so I know that there are such things as IV stem cell therapy. So that's one question. And the other is around mitochondria. So while we have the ability to make cells younger, can you also do that to mitochondria? Does the reversal of a differentiated cell also reverse the aging that has taken place within the mitochondria in that cell? Or is that something that needs to be solved as well? Very sophisticated questions. The On the mitochondria one first, the, sure. some people believe that the mitochondria, of course, is the powerhouse of the cell in a sense, the battery of a cell. And some people believe that the mutation, there's mutations that occur in the DNA of the mitochondria and that that's driving the aging of cells. I don't personally adhere to that hypothesis myself, but I do believe that there are age-related changes in mitochondria that are very reversible. 
mm. as part of this technology we're working on called ITR, induced tissue regeneration, or as mm. I said, it could be induced age regression, and we should have named it that. Because I believe there are multiple different states that the mitochondria can be in. One's a regenerative mode and one's a kind of a non-regenerative mode. Mm-hmm. And the regenerative mode is beneficial and that is modifiable. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and then you asked about the systemic or whole body administration of stem cells. That should raise alarm bells in people's minds. That's, I think, the only cell that can reasonably be delivered to the whole body by injecting it IV, you know, into the circulation mm-hmm. are the blood forming stem cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're delivered that right way routinely. The concept of these cells that you can inject them and they kind of, I've heard them called uh, ambulance cells. They mm-hmm. rush to the scene of the crime and fix the problem, you know? Yeah. And I know a little bit about stem cells. I, I just don't believe that. I, yeah. It's kind of true for the blood cell, but I have almost no evidence for any other kind of cell. It has to be administered to the tissue. So if you had a heart attack, the cells need to be put in the heart. If you have arthritis, it would need to be put into the joint. Parkinson's disease, the cells would need to check into the brain. So if someone is looking at a local stem cell clinic and they say, oh yeah, we take these cells and we inject them in your blood, in my opinion, that's the basis to realize that uh, you're being told a story. Yeah. So if things go perfectly, how soon do you think that one of your technologies could be in clinic? Well, we have multiple clinical trials now. For age-related macular degeneration, we have clinical trial sites in the United States. It started in Jerusalem. And spinal cord injury, we have multiple sites set up in the United States. And we're about to begin a clinical trial in our company, Asterius, making a, a cancer vaccine, targeting this immortalizing gene called telomerase which mm-hmm. we didn't talk about much today. So those are in clinical trials and patients can look up some of those trial sites if they have friends or family with those problems. But approved products, while we're well within, we don't, we're a public company, so we don't normally provide timelines unless we've officially announced them. Sure. But any reasonable person would expect that if they're going to be approved by FDA, that they would be approved within the decade. And that's sort of outside limit. Well, Mike, thank you. I think being a pioneer, as there is increasing appreciation of aging, not being something that how to take care of older people so that they have a good life, but actually keeping us young, youthful, productive, happy, and functional much later into our lifespan. That's a lot more life in our years. There's going to be an increasing appreciation of that. There's going to be an increasing appreciation of your work for being brave, for being smart, and for persisting so that you could navigate this kind of tricky environment as the early stages. I mean, it's going to be popular soon, and a lot of people are going to be getting, and it's getting there. But I wouldn't call it bravery. If you see a house on fire and there's a child in the window screaming for help, you run in. I don't know if it's bravery. It's just we've got a nation of people here that are asking for help. And I think anybody in the scientific community thinks nothing of applying their life to that goal. Yeah. It's bravery. It's what any normal, decent person would do. But appreciate all the intelligent dialogue. Well, thank you. Like you said, we didn't even talk about telomerase and all that. And I know you've done so much of your work in the past has been around that. So maybe in the future, we'll have a whole separate conversation about that. Look forward to it. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great day, Mike. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.